what's better in life than a bottle of wine, great food, and an amazing conversation? My name is Kate Sullivan, and I am the host of To Dine For. I'm a journalist, a foodie, a traveler with an appetite for the stories of people who are hungry for more. Dreamers, visionaries, artists, those who hustle hard in the direction they love. I travel with them to their favorite restaurant to hear how they did it. This show is a toast to them and their American dream. Thank you to the sponsors of To Dine For The Podcast, American National and Spiritless. To Dine For The Podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. For 115 years, American National has remained committed to helping people and communities make a real difference in their lives. American National supports great local community organizations led by the kind of people you hear about on To Dine For, people who are inspired to make a difference and inspire others in return. American National's philosophy is helping where it's needed helps us all. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write, and the states in which they're licensed, visit americannational.com dine. Spiritless supports the conscientious cocktailer who wants to live fully but drink differently. Their signature Kentucky 74 is a distilled non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails. It's zero alcohol zero guilt, and just 15 calories per serving. Whether you go completely spiritless or go halfsies with a foolproof bourbon to lower the ABV in your cocktail, you can get your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use promo code to dine for to get free shipping. Welcome to To Dine For, the podcast where we meet the world's most creative and innovative minds at their favorite restaurant. On today's episode is entrepreneur and champion for making the world better and a little clearer, Dave Gilboa. That passion certainly influenced me as a child. And I think most importantly, it infused me with this unwavering belief that your job should be not only an opportunity to earn an income, but you should leverage that time to help make the world better and help people. When he was a student at Wharton Business School, Dave Gilboa and his friends commiserated over the steep price of eyeglasses. This trivial conversation sparked a revolutionary idea. In 2010, they launched one of the most sought-after brands in retail, Warby Parker. Today, Dave is co-CEO of Warby Parker. Warby Parker offers affordable glasses as well as a free try-on-at-home option. They have retail locations across the country and Canada. But beyond that, the company employs a social entrepreneurship program, distributing free eyeglasses to those in need. Dave's achievements have earned him a Henry Crown Fellowship and the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Through his work at Warby Parker, Dave Gilboa is showing companies that they can be profitable and be a force for good in the world. Today, we speak about innovation, success, and social responsibility. Please enjoy my interview with Dave Gilboa. Dave, thanks so much for joining me on To Dine For, the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I am fascinated by what you've created. I'm fascinated by your career, but I always like to begin at the beginning. And on To Dine For, we go with the guests to their favorite restaurant, wherever that is in the country. I know uh, you're currently coming in from Aspen. I'm wondering if there was a restaurant that would help to tell your story. Where would that be and where would you take me? Yes, I I grew up in a little suburb of San Diego called Solana Beach. 
And so I have a very soft spot in my heart for Mexican food. Mm. And uh, there's a great local authentic place called Fidel's that is always the first stop from the airport. They have amazing tacos, enchiladas, burritos. So that is uh, probably my favorite place to eat in the world. I love it. I know that you were born in Sweden, but that you grew up in San Diego and your parents were doctors. I'm wondering, you know, when you were in college, A, what you wanted to do, and B, were there any expectations put on you from your parents to to go in the medical field? Yeah, so uh, both my parents are doctors. My sister, my older sister is a nurse practitioner. And growing up, I was 100% sure I was going to be a doctor. The only question was uh, which kind of doctor. Mm. And I think my parents are still hoping I'll go back to med school one day. So yeah, they're, uh, <laughs> they're still they're, holding uh, out on hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Uh, I think there were um, some, some high expectations there. And yeah, both my parents were the first people in their families to go to college. And, and they really created a lot of opportunities for themselves, opportunities to, to help a lot of people, create opportunities for our family through their mm-hmm. education and through um, that medical career path. And, and so they're super passionate. They're still both working. And, and I think that that passion certainly influenced me as a, as a child. And I think most importantly, it infused me with this unwavering belief that your job should be not only an opportunity to earn an income, but you should leverage that time to help make the world better and help people. And and I think what I realized once Mm I uh, got to college and and went to Berkeley as a bioengineering major, took all the pre-med classes, took the MCAT, was kind of all all, um, All in. Yep. uh, To to go on that uh, path that was laid out for me. I realized that there are other ways that you can positively impact the world. There are other ways that you can positively impact people without being a practicing physician. And and during my time at Berkeley, um, there were a lot of changes to the the healthcare industry, the rise of HMOs and talking to my parents and and other doctors, they felt sounded like less satisfied than they were previously when Mm -hmm. they could spend more time working with patients. And that kind of opened my eyes to other avenues and other possibilities. And I thought that there might be an interesting path to use business and, and leadership one day to uh, do something positive in the world. And I'd only studied science classes. And so I thought that there would be a good opportunity for me to kind of learn something about business as a next step, and then could kind of bring those passions to together later in my career. Isn't it interesting that we are affected, whether we know it or not, by the emotions that people have around a certain career? Perhaps it was the discontent that you felt your parents were feeling at that moment politically about what was going on in the healthcare that said, maybe there's a different way than becoming a doctor that I could actually have a better, more happier life and a maybe even more impactful outcome. I'm always fascinated by the, the reason we do what we do. Take me to Wharton. Take me to the very beginning when you and really your dear friend come up with this idea to make a better mousetrap and to create eyeglasses that are affordable. Sure. Yeah. So um, maybe taking a, a couple steps back um, after I graduated from Berkeley, knew nothing about business, uh, ended up taking a job at Bain and Company, that strategy consulting firm, had a great experience there, learned a ton over the course of three years. Um, also realized I didn't want to be a consultant for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And so um, as a next step, I moved to New York, worked for a small merchant bank called Allen and Company, helped them start their healthcare practice. And so it was kind of a combination of science, healthcare, and business. And again, learned a ton, had a great experience there, but also realized that I didn't want to be kind of on the 
financial advisory, investment banking side of things. And so, uh, and I was working with a lot of entrepreneurs that seemed like they were having a lot more fun than I was. And so I decided to go back to school. Again, the emotions, you, you saw the fun, you saw the emotions of how people felt about what they were doing. Absolutely. Um, And yeah, I was interested in doing something entrepreneurial, joining an early stage company, maybe starting something. I didn't have any great ideas. Um, And so I thought going back to school might be an opportunity to meet some interesting people, spark some creative thought. I applied to Wharton and got in and actually uh, was planning to do a dual degree program, getting my MBA at the business school, but also a master's of biotech um, through the engineering school and thought that I could maybe combine um, some science and form kind of a business around it. And I I thought it was also a unique opportunity in life during this transition between working and going back to school to travel and explore the world and having been born in Sweden and being exposed to many different cultures at, at an early age. I have always just been drawn to to traveling and exploration of of the world. And so I took six months uh, to travel backpack around the world. Um, I handed in my company issued BlackBerry on my last day at working at Allen and Company, um, and then traveled through uh, Central America and then over to to Southeast Asia. And along the way, I lost my only pair of glasses, left them on a plane. And so I came back and I'd been traveling that uh, entire six months without a phone came back to the US, uh, was about to be a full-time student, needed to buy two things. One was a new phone, the iPhone 3G had just come out. And so I went to the Apple store, paid $200 for this magical device. And then I had to buy a new pair of glasses and they were gonna cost me $700. And that just didn't make any sense to me. I'd been wearing glasses since I was uh, 12 years old, uh, but I'd never really thought to question why they were so expensive. It's technology that's been around for 800 years and I was gonna have to pay several times more than uh, this new kind of magical computer um, that I could keep in my pocket. At the same time, as I was complaining to several of my new classmates, realized that there were a lot of other frustrated consumers, um, including some of my new friends. And so um, actually Andy Hunt, uh, who's one of our co-founders, was on my learning team. So our class at Wharton is over 800 people. We were separated into groups of six where we took all our first year classes together. Andy was one of my learning teammates and he had been wondering why no one was selling glasses online. Uh, That didn't make sense to him. He was, this was 2008. So the world looked very different. Um, This was before Amazon had really kind of taken over so much of the e-commerce landscape, Uh, but you had Blue Nile selling engagement rings um, online. You had Zappos selling shoes. You had diapers.com selling diapers and kind of uh, household goods. And, uh, but no one was effectively selling glasses online. And so as we started talking about, you know, this doesn't make any sense. It's a product that so many people need. There's been so little innovation, both on the product side or the distribution side. Uh, this just doesn't make sense. And as we started talking more about it, included a couple of our other friends and classmates, Neil and, and, and Jeff, um, who became really passionate and uh, about the conversation. And Neil had spent five years running uh, this great nonprofit called Vision Spring, where they work with locals in uh, geographies like Bangladesh and El Salvador to actually design, manufacture, and sell subsidized glasses into communities that otherwise don't have access to glasses. And so through that process, he realized that there was nothing in the cost of goods of these materials that justified the high prices. Interesting. He knew. He knew that, you know, the gig's up here, so to speak, right? That there's no reason to sell them for that expensive. How expensive they were was really ridiculous. 
right? He'd been to factories where they were producing glasses for people living on less than $4 a day. And it was the same factory, same production lines that were selling, uh, you know, producing glasses that, that were being sold for hundreds of dollars in, in the US. Mm. And so uh, the four of us got together. Uh, we were full-time students and uh, decided that this was a huge market opportunity that we could solve our own problems. And that there was this opportunity to create kind of a, a new type of brand, a direct consumer brand, uh, but one also that that did good uh, for the world. And, and so we spent a lot of long nights at kind of our favorite local pub, Roosevelt's uh, around campus in, in Philadelphia, and I just became kind of more and more excited about the idea and then decided to actually invest all our life savings and, and uh, try to turn it into reality. We'll have more on this conversation in just a minute. But first, thank you to our sponsors. To Dine For the podcast is brought to you by American National, offering a broad suite of insurance solutions to protect what matters most to you. There's a funny thing about most insurance commercials, whether they feature lizards or birds or funny cartoon characters. It seems like they want you to think about anything but insurance. American National, on the other hand, has real local agents who get to know you so they can help you reach better decisions about your insurance to make sure you're protecting what matters most to you. American National agents are part of your community. They're your neighbors. So whether it's solutions for your home, your small business, your farm, or your life, you can count on your local American National agent to make sure you get the discounts you deserve and the protection you need without paying for extras you don't. With American National, you get an ally, not just a web page. For a description of the American National companies, the products they write in the states in which they're licensed, visit AmericanNational.com dine. If you're like me, there are times when you want to feel like you're having a fancy cocktail, but you don't actually want the alcohol. So I love Kentucky 74 from Spiritless. It's a distilled, non-alcoholic spirit for your favorite bourbon cocktails, but with just 15 calories per serving and none of the guilt. You can pre-order your bottle today at spiritless.com. Use the promo code to dine for to get free shipping. Now back to our conversation. So was social entrepreneurship always at the heart of it? Were you always interested in making Warby Parker not only a place that would sell glasses, but that would also give glasses away to people in need? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we we weren't always sure that we were going to have our buy a pair, give a pair model, but right. um, we we spent as much time talking about how we could create an organization that had positive impact, that did good uh, for the world, as we did about kind of the business model and the industry and the intricacies of what we would sell and how we would engage with with customers. I think all of us. You know, given my upbringing of becoming, uh, you know, very close to to going to to med school and becoming a doctor, um, Neil spending time for several years uh, running this amazing nonprofit, Jeff and Andy being super passionate about work in the um, public and, and nonprofit sector, we realized that we wanted to build something that had more impact um, as it scaled. And the idea of starting a company is really exciting, uh, but if we um, wanted to continue to be engaged and continue to be motivated uh, to build this not only over you know to to get to launch, but in the months, years, and decades uh, in front of us, we would need to build in a social mission into the fabric of, of the company. And we talked about different ways that we could we could do that. We could donate a percentage of profits or a percentage of revenue uh, to certain causes. Uh, but we realized that you know, sometimes those numbers can be manipulated and do different accounting tricks. And um, the most tangible 
way that uh, we could translate impact is the number of people's lives that we're, we're touching. And, and there's a one-to-one relationship between the number of, of glasses distributed and the number of people whose lives you're, you're impacting. And so um, that's where we landed on our buy a pair, give a pair program. And we knew that Vision Spring could be a great partner uh, to help us scale that um, as we were building our business. The early days, you entered this in a business competition, is that correct? And did you win it? Uh, we did. So uh, Wharton has a business plan competition. We entered and we didn't even make the finals, uh, uh, which, uh, um, yeah. At, when at you're looking, looking back, do you realize why you didn't make the finals? Did you Have you been able to determine it or was it just luck? I think we were trying to do a lot at the same time, um, right? No one was effectively selling glasses online. We were trying to create a brand. We were trying to sell glasses for one fifth of the cost of what anyone else in the U.S. was selling. We were trying to incorporate a social mission into what we were doing. And so there was a lot to digest and and the degree of difficulty of getting any of the, one of those things right, but was pretty high and doing all of it at the same time was pretty ambitious. But, you know, getting some of that feedback from the, the judges at first was, you yeah, know, felt a little bit demoralizing, but then we just, you know, became a chip on our shoulder um, yeah. where we wanted to prove people wrong. And the fact that we had four of us as co-founders enabled us to blunt some of that you know, negative feedback that we got because we really believed in each other and we could reinforce that belief. And, yes. and if it was just me as a sole founder and all of a sudden I got a bunch of feedback telling me why something wouldn't work that might shade my my perception about kind of future prospects but having kind of the support uh, between the four of us enabled us to to push through and and we took that feedback just as motivation to uh, to move faster and think bigger. That is really fascinating. It's almost like, you know, you as a little band of of people who believe so much in this mission, it insulated you from probably the massive amount of rejection that every entrepreneur faces. So in a way, it became a superpower of yours to have the four of you soldiering on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, in retrospect, maybe we had kind of shared delusion, um, but it, um, it, it created <laughs> good the, delusion the is important. Yeah, yeah, it shared the it created the perception that you know I wasn't the only one that was kind of crazy and delusional. At least there are some other people along for the ride with me. At the very beginning, you mentioned that you all put in your life savings. How much did that total? Yeah, so we'd each worked for a few years before going back to business school and, and had some savings. Uh, and uh, so we each committed initially $25,000. So mm-hmm. between um, the four of us, it was $100,000. We recognized that sometimes things cost more than you initially anticipate. And so we reserved an extra $5,000 each that could be called on if the company needed it and it immediately needed it. So mm-hmm. uh, we each ended up uh, putting in 30K, so $120,000 total. We weren't paying ourselves a salary. We didn't have an office. We didn't have any employees. We spent zero dollars on marketing, and I just operated in the scrappiest way possible. And um, yeah, while it was um, a bit daunting to fund this business that probably had a high likelihood of failure with uh, basically every dollar I had in my bank account, we were more confident in that approach than losing other people's money. Sure, um, sure. We, we would have been you know, really terrified of of, uh, of doing that. I always feel that the the work of an entrepreneur in the, in the early days is like taking two wet sticks and rubbing them together and really hoping you start a fire. And it's just so difficult. When you look back at those early days, what was it that you caught a break or that you were, hustled hard 
or that really allowed you to get that spark? Was it an investment? Was it some marketing? Was some viral marketing? What was it that really you credit as as helping to propel you forward? Yeah, I think any successful business or any successful entrepreneur has a lot of good luck that that falls their way. And, and the key is positioning yourself to be the beneficiary of that good luck and then capitalizing um, on it when it when it comes your way. And uh, we're certainly no exception. We in the early days, something that really put us on the map was PR. You know, we when we launched, this was early 2010, the world looked dramatically different in terms of launching a new brand. Um, now you pull up Instagram and uh, you know every third ad is a is a new brand that's highly targeted that can reach an audience um, right away that you know makes it really easy to click and and all of a sudden purchase. Instagram didn't exist when uh, when we launched and we realized that for Wharton MBAs uh, probably isn't the sexiest founding team um, uh, to the fashion and design world. Mm. And so the, a pair of glasses has both um, form and function. And right, clearly it helps you see. But uh, the reason that most people select a pair of glasses is because uh, they look good on their face and they fit them well. And we had a, a distinct point of view around the design of our frames. And we wanted to make sure that we had kind of a stamp of approval from the fashion community. And so mm. when we launched, we only spent money on three things. One was a, a firm to help us build a website since none of us knew how to code. Uh, the second was uh, for our initial set of inventory uh, because um, our suppliers wouldn't give us any uh, financing terms. We had to pay for all the inventory before they would ship it to us. And then third, we hired a fashion publicist uh, because we thought it was so important to get kind of that stamp of approval um, from the fashion community. And we were able to launch with these great features in GQ and Vogue. I remember the night before uh, the Vogue issue was going to end up on newsstands, we got a call from our publicist and said, hey, I went, guys, I went to your website. It says coming soon. What, what's going on? GQ's dropping tomorrow. And uh, he told us that we were going to be in the March issue, which we thought came out in March. I didn't realize that it actually hits newsstands in, in mid-February. So we scrambled uh, to the very last minute at like four in the morning. There were still a bunch of bugs on our site, uh, but we just pushed it live. And it was to the point where yeah, I, my mom didn't know the site was live. Our best friends didn't know the site was live, but we needed something. And we were sitting in class a few hours later and I had my phone set up. To you're be still in class at this point? Yeah. You're so, still, in, uh, you're yeah, still yeah, at Wharton. Still, we're still at Wharton. Wow. Um, and um, yeah, so after a couple hours of sleep, dragged myself to campus and had my phone set up to be notified anytime we got an order. And uh, my phone buzzed and I immediately let the other guys know, Jeff, uh, Neil, Andy, uh, super excited. 10 minutes later, another order. And we all pulled out our laptops in a class that we weren't supposed to be using our computers and we're you know, <laughs> typing away. And uh, then all of a sudden realized that after that hour and a half class, we had taken more orders than we had inventory for. Wow. And uh, we had no sold out functionality, no waitlist functionality. That was never a feature that we contemplated. You even we thought about, yeah. yeah. And we had an emergency meeting where we talked about just taking down our website or taking orders and just apologizing to customers later. We were able to call um, our one developer that we were working with and he built some waitlist functionality pretty quickly. All of a sudden we had a waitlist of 20,000 customers. 
And that um, was all from the GQ and Vogue or that was just from Vogue? That was GQ and Vogue. And wow. then two days later, the editor of Daily Candy, yes. uh, if you remember that, yes. um, read about us in Vogue and they published us to their newsletter. And and uh, then it kind of turned into the snowball effect on on Twitter and Facebook, which were kind of the, the social main social platforms at the time. It immediately put us on the map. We we hit our first year sales targets in three weeks. We were stocked out of inventory for about nine months, and and it was just off to the races. And so, um, certainly that that was kind of our our first uh, break that 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 came our way. When you think about that moment, sitting there looking at your phone, seeing that first order come in, and then ten minutes later. When you look back at the trajectory of Warby Parker, has anything compared to that excitement at that moment when you get your first order? Uh, that one's pretty tough to beat. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah it was pretty exhilarating. And then, yeah, the, the few days and weeks after that were uh, just a whirlwind where I would fall asleep every night with a laptop on my chest, just typing and responding to customer emails and processing orders. And, um, you know, we, we had a few other, you know, pretty exciting moments along the way. We had a kind of a front page article on the New York times business section. And we ended up being the second most emailed article. And, uh, we were named uh, the most innovative company in the world by fast company Mm -hmm. and got a cover story and, you know, things that those press moments have led to, uh, an immediate, spike and step function in awareness and, and order demand. And, and we've had to react, you know, when your business doubles overnight, um, it's that's hard. when things so get they, really hard, right? Like that, yeah. you think that it's just about getting going. That's hard. Then you realize there's a no, there's another whole level of hard. So what was the next pain point in the building of Warby Parker and really expanding it? Yeah, it's really, you know, hiring and building a team and, you know, doing so initially while we were full-time students working out of our apartments. And so uh, we put out a bunch of Craigslist ads and (laughs) um, hired some great people and had them come work from Neil's apartment. And uh, we didn't have a payroll system. So just wrote them a personal check at the uh, end of every, every week. And a lot of those early employees are still with us and have taken on really meaningful leadership roles in a number of different departments. And, you know, ultimately uh, any business is only as good as, as the people you attract. And so um, we've really focused on building a culture that stands for fun, creativity, doing good in the world, and um, are fortunate that we've been able to attract so many passionate, curious people who want to work for an organization that is creating meaningful impact. And people are motivated regardless if they're one of our eyewear designers, they work on our supply chain team, they're one of our accountants or engineers. Um, They're able to connect the work they do to kind of the the broader impact that our our company has. And uh, one of the fun things we do is anyone who's been at the company for three years, will fly them somewhere in the world uh, to to go out with our nonprofit partners to actually uh, administer vision tests, put glasses on people's faces for the first time. um, you know, a bunch of people that have had to get passports. They've never left the country before. And all of a sudden they're rural Guatemala and in villages without running water, or electricity, and kind of bonding with um, other members of our team. And those types of actions, you know, really bring um, a strong, cohesive uh, culture of people who are really motivated for the right reasons. And, and um, now we're about 3000 people and grown quickly. And, wow. and so every, every year the company feels a little bit different. Just You know, how is it for you? You know, you started this company, you're 10 years in or more, 
And, you know, where do you see your role with the company? Are you still energized and excited at what you're doing? And what do you see the future for Dave? Yeah, I, you know, I, when we, uh, right now we're working remotely, um, but when our office is open, um, yeah, I generally excited uh, yeah. every day when I walk into our office uh, to get to, to work with our team. And, and I'm just inspired and motivated uh, by the people that work day in, day out at, at Orby Parker. And I feel just fortunate to be part of this much bigger team. My role has changed dramatically over the last few years where it went from really kind of quick feedback cycles where if I was helping to design a pair of glasses or build a financial model or put together a presentation, I got immediate feedback on if that was working well or not. And now as kind of the manager of managers of managers, the, the feedback cycles become longer. And, yes. and so, um, you know, understanding how I can be as effective as possible uh, to ensure that people are motivated, that they're aligned, that they're prioritizing work, that everyone is kind of marching in the same direction and they have kind of all the tools they need to, to do their job. I think that, you know, that, that's what uh, kind of I, I focus on, on a daily basis now. And, and, um, it's just kind of a fun challenge, given that every year, kind of my role is, is pretty different from the year before. You started off by saying that you've always wanted to have a career that you could also do good in the world. And that is really at the heart of Warby Parker. What advice would you give someone, especially a young person who's just leaving college, just graduating, and also wants to have that kind of impact, maybe doesn't have your background, wasn't going to be a doctor, but was is in another field? What advice would you give them to make sure that that is really the path that they're on? The first piece of advice would be that it uh, has to come from an authentic place. We often kind of see companies that have some sort of campaign or marketing message around, um, you know, a, a short-term effort that they're involved with. Uh, but for anything to have a long life and, and to have sustainability, it needs to be motivated uh, by an authentic desire to actually create impact and, and impact in an area that that you're passionate about. And so, uh, you know, for us, as we were spending more time learning about uh, the optical industry, also realized that there are a billion people around the world that need glasses that don't have access to them. And, and all of a sudden, just being faced by this really big opportunity uh, where we thought we could have impact, it you know, became obvious to us that we should step into that and we should be doing everything we can uh, to try to, to correct that, that issue. Um, now for other businesses and, and other professions, that, that might be a very different cause that makes sense to connect to the work that an individual is doing or the passion that they have. And so would kind of caution people just to kind of jump at the first opportunity or, or, you know, just because there is some cause or some organization that they can get involved with, take a step back and um, ask yourself, is this something that I'm truly passionate about? Is this mm-hmm. something that I want to be addressing for um, not only for the next few weeks, but, but years and, and decades to come? Fascinating. Well, your story is incredible. I wish you the all the luck in the world with Warby Parker. I have like four Warby Parker glasses on my bedside table. I rotate every night, even though I'm the only one who sees myself in them. <laughs> I still love them. And I just thank you so much for your time today. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to To Dine For The Podcast. For more information on the show, the guests and the podcast, head to todinefortv.com. You can find us on Instagram at todinefortv and Facebook at To Dine For with Kate Sullivan. Thanks to the sponsors of To Dine For, the podcast, American National and Spiritless. 
Special thank you to producer and sound editor John Golner. To the loyal followers of this program, cheers, stay hungry, and stay inspired. I'll see you back at the table soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.